If you would please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, we will be looking this morning at Genesis 49, Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. Uh, We are continuing our uh, sermon series, our special sermon Advent series uh, for this December, this Christmas season, looking at Christmas according to the Old Testament. Uh, We've already looked at Micah 5. Last week we looked at Genesis 3.15, and here this morning uh, we are going to focus on Jacob's blessing uh, to his son and uh, to the tribe of Judah in verses 8 through 12. Uh, So with that introduction out of the way, let us now give reading to Uh, give attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, Uh, starting in verse 8 of Genesis 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Mighty write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Would you come with me to God in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these last few weeks where we have the privilege of of seeing uh, the Old Testament scriptures from the perspective of fulfillment from the perspective of Christ who is already raised victorious uh, in the heavens at your right hand, having done and accomplished all that you called him to do and all that the Old Testament pages of Scripture prophesied of him doing. And so, O oh Lord, what a privilege it is ours as, as your saints who have the imprint of your spirit with eyes and ears to see and to hear, to, to go back to pages like this, to Genesis 49, and to see the wonder, the depths of your wisdom that you had laid out at the first. Though it was steeped in mystery, now we get to see that mystery revealed. And so we pray, Lord, even as we go back to this first book in the Bible, as we look at these initial blessings from Jacob to to the tribe of Judah, might our hearts be lifted up. Might we rejoice in the fact that all this finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ, who is the Lion of Judah. We praise you and we thank you for this time to read your word, to hear it proclaimed. Pray that you would use it to draw us ever nearer to our Lord, our King, our Lion, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray and we ask all these things. Amen. In Genesis 49, uh, Jacob turns to bless his sons and really in turn, comes to bless the 12 tribes of Israel. He is nearing the end of his life. The book of Genesis is made up of 50 chapters. Here is chapter 49, near the end of the book of Genesis. 
and Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, really the last of the great chief patriarchs, now leaves this earth by blessing his sons. And these blessings that he gives to his sons and to the 12 tribes of Israel really serve in many ways as prophecy. Uh, He's really, in many ways, prophesying, telling us beforehand what each tribe is going to be like, what their character is going to be like as redemptive history uh, unfolds. In fact, it's someone sometimes good. I would encourage you, whenever you're reading the Old Testament and you come across stories of a particular tribe, it's it's sometimes good to, to go back to Genesis 49 and to see those initial prophecies and blessings about that particular tribe and see how it's being carried out within redemptive history in the pages of Old Testament scripture. And so here, in, nearing the end of his life, Jacob is blessing the 12 tribes of Israel. And here in verse 8 through 12, he specifically is blessing uh, his son Judah and the tribe that would come from Judah, the tribe of Judah. Uh, In verse 8, Jacob says, Your brothers shall praise you. In other words, Judah will be praised by the other tribes of Israel. Now, this word praise here is actually a play on words with the word Judah. Judah quite literally means the object of praise. So, therefore, Judah being the object of praise is going to be praised by the other tribes, his brothers in Israel. Uh, He is referred to as a lion who puts his hand on the neck of his enemies. Uh, You recall last week when we looked at Genesis 3.15 and the crushing of the head of the serpent, uh, we saw that in the ancient world, oftentimes what you would have is the conquering king places foot on the neck of the conquered king because the neck was the place that you would strike with the sword in order to behead your enemy. And it would be a symbol of triumph. It would be a symbol of victory. So Judah is going to put its hand on the enemy's neck. Judah is going to be a strong, mighty tribe. From this tribe will come the crushing of the head of the enemy from the tribe of Judah. Of course, we see this, this strong sort of military might in Judah's history within the Old Testament. Uh, At the very beginning of the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 1, verse 1, Israel inquires of the Lord and says, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord says, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And then from there, you see Judah, the ravenous, roaring lion, really throughout chapter 1, conquering Canaanite city after Canaanite city, including Jerusalem herself. And in verse 19, God sums all that victory, all that lion work, if you will, up in verse 19 of Judges 1, and we are told, and the Lord was with Judah. So we see it being carried out in Judah's history, especially in Judges chapter 1. And of course, we see this being fulfilled uh, in the person of King David, who was of the tribe of Judah and who conquered many uh, many cities and was uh, in many ways a mighty warrior, a, uh, a king, as we are told, after God's own heart. 
verse 10, there is the promise that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff until tribute comes to him. Now, the ESV here says until tribute comes to him, uh, but the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, which I know many of you have, uh, takes the more literal translation here that says until Shiloh comes to him. Uh, Now, this word Shiloh is notoriously difficult uh, to translate. Uh, Really, there are two best options for uh, what Shiloh means here. Uh, The first option is that this word really refers to peace or rest until peace or rest comes to him. Shiloh sounding like the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. And many would say that Jesus Christ is sort of the personification of peace and rest. So the first interpretation and a good interpretation is that this refers to peace or rest and Jesus Christ is that peace and rest that comes. Or it could mean uh, until he who it belongs to comes. Quote, until he who it belongs to comes. This is actually the translation that I, the interpretation that I favor. Uh, This was the traditional interpretation of the Jewish people and really the tradition of the interpretation of the ancient rabbis as well. Until he who it belongs to comes. Now, this understanding and interpretation of this passage is really based on Ezekiel 21. Ezekiel 21, verse 27, where the Lord says to Judah in judgment upon Judah for their sins uh, that he is going to take the crown away from Judah and Babylon is going to come in and destroy Jerusalem and take Judah into exile. And there in Ezekiel 21, verse 27, uh, the judgment he is going to take his crown away from him until, quote, he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. So there you see around the 6th century BC, due to Israel's sins, due to the sins of the king in Judah, uh, you recall that Israel at this time is really made up of two parts. You have the northern kingdom, which is often referred to as Israel, and then you have the southern kingdom, which is often referred to as Judah or Judea. And in that southern kingdom, you would have the king who reigned there in the southern kingdom was of the tribe of Judah. But as we see throughout the laundry list of kings, both in Chronicles and in the book of Kings, they became evil. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and God in judgment judges the king, and here in Ezekiel 21, says he is going to take the crown from that king until he who judgment belongs comes. Now, this would seem to indicate when we read Ezekiel 21 on the surface that the promise that uh, uh, Jacob gives to Judah in uh, Genesis 49 is broken. After all, he does promise, as we see here, the scepter would not leave Judah, until the time of the coming one, the, until, until Shiloh would come, the one to whom judgment belongs, namely Jesus Christ. Yet it, here it seems in Ezekiel 21, the scepter does in, indeed leave Judah. The kingship does indeed leave Judah. Judah is taken into exile in Babylon, and there is no king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. So on the surface, when we read Ezekiel 21, we might uh, be tempted to say that that initial blessing 
to Judah was broken. However, when we look at Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1, uh, we see that that is not the case. Uh, starting, in verse six, uh, starting in verse 6 of chapter 1 of Matthew's genealogy, uh, Matthew will link Christ to the kings of Judah, starting with David. And then in verse 11, he, le- he links him to Jeconiah. And who is Jeconiah? Jeconiah was the last king before the destruction of Jerusalem, the last king before the deportation uh, to Babylon. But Matthew doesn't stop there. Matthew then goes on into verse 12 uh, to continue through the line of Jeconiah that continues after the deportation and ends with Christ, runs all the way up to Christ. In other words, though there is no physical king, on the throne after Babylon comes. What Matthew indicates is that though the physical crown had ceased for a time, the royal line continued on and through Jeconiah, the last king before Babylon comes and destroys Judah until it reaches Christ. And that scepter, that ruler's staff, is handed over to Christ. The lion no longer seen in a tribe and the tracing of tribal genealogies, but the lion now seen in one person, one individual, now and forever. Really, Jesus Christ is the end of genealogies. He is the climax of genealogies, and he is the climax, the end, the culmination of the genealogies of the kings that come from the tribe of Judah. And there is to be no more genealogies after Christ. He is the Lion of Judah in one person and in one individual. And what we will see here today is that Jesus is first the Lion of nations. Second, he is the Lion of celebration. And third and finally, he is the Lion of sorrows. Nations, celebration, sorrows. So first, Jesus Christ is the lion of nations. When this ruler comes and takes his scepter, we are told to him will be the obedience of the peoples. Uh, Earlier in verse 8, Judah will be praised by the tribes of Israel, as we saw earlier. But here, as we see in verse 10, when the rightful owner of the scepter comes, the obedience not only of the tribes is given, but the obedience of the peoples. And that is a word that is often shorthand for the nations. So when the scepter, the ruler's staff, is given to Shiloh, when it is given to the one in whom judgment belongs, the nations, the peoples, along with the tribe of his, tribes of Israel, will render obedience unto the king, unto the lion of Judah. Really what this is, is God... Uh, really bringing to bear uh, those promises that he first delivered over to Abraham. Uh, Really, we can separate the book of Genesis into two sections. Chapters 1 through 11, it's often called primival history, or what we call pre-patriarchal history. But then starting in chapter 12, all the way through the end of the book in chapter 50, you have what we might call patriarchal history. 
And what do we see in chapter 12? Right away when Abraham enters into the scene, what is the promise, the initial promise that God gives to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3? He says to him, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And now here God is in a sense sort of giving us the reader a microscope, helping us to see more clearly how this Abrahamic promise is going to come and and be fulfilled. The broad, grand promise of Genesis 12 is now being narrowed down to the tribe of Judah. I don't know if you've ever heard anyone give such a grand promise, such a grand proclamation, and, and you hear it, and it's so grand, it's so wonderful, but you can't quite wrap your head around it. You can't really put any flesh on, on the skeleton of that grand promise. You say to yourself, yeah, that sounds wonderful, that sounds great, but you can't quite understand it, you can't quite embrace it until there's some substance that belongs to it, until you start to see it with your your eyes or taste it or hear it. And, And only then can you start to really, to embrace that grand, wonderful promise. Well, that's kind of what you have here in Genesis 49. That grand, wonderful promise in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Yeah, that sounds great. I just don't know how to wrap my head around that. Well, here he's putting flesh on the skeleton of that grand promise. He's starting to to show us specifically, gives us a microscope and narrows down that grand promise and gives us insight early on here as to how that grand promise to Abraham at the start in Genesis 12 is going to be fulfilled. You recall last week when we looked at Genesis 3.15 and And we saw there that that really Genesis 3.15 works as a blueprint for all of Scripture. We said it was like a flower that is gradually blossoming as redemptive history is pushed along. Well, in the Abrahamic covenant, those initial promises to Abraham, Genesis 3.15, that flower is, is starting to bloom. That blueprint is starting to come into greater and greater focus. And now you get into Genesis 49, and it's narrowed down even more now to the tribe of Judah. And it's through the tribe of Judah that the head is going to be crushed, that the hand is going to be placed on the neck of the enemy. And so there's that greater, more clear focus of that initial blueprint, that flower that is blossoming, that flower of Genesis 3.15. Luke chapter 2, you have that old righteous man, Simeon, who was told by the Lord that he would not die until he saw his Lord Christ. And when Mary and Joseph come to dedicate baby Jesus to the Lord in the temple, Simeon sees him, and you recall his response. He, He lavishes God with praise, and he blesses God. And what is it that he sees upon seeing baby Jesus? He says these words, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. So what is it that we see when that scepter, that ruler's staff is handed over to the Lion of Judah? He will have all the nations under his jurisdiction. All the nations, not just Israel, 
will render obedience to Christ. And notice in Genesis 49 that it is obedience that Christ will bring. He will bring the obedience of the peoples, the obedience of the nations. He is a light to the nations. He is a revelation to the peoples. And the recognition of that light and that revelation is obedience to Jesus Christ. Really, obedience is the evidence that we have rightly discerned, that we have rightly seen the revelation of Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Really, what we do on Christmas is we think of what, uh, what Christ brings in his coming. And what is it that he brings? Really, brothers and sisters, he brings a new found obedience. Christmas is not simply about ooing and aahing at baby Jesus in the manger. It's about the arrival of the king of nations, the lion of Judah, the one who has the ruler's staff, whose scepter is an everlasting scepter, and who demands and commands our obedience. So as we sing songs about baby Jesus, as we tell the story that oftentimes makes us smile and maybe even weep, let us also at the same time assess how we are living in obedience to the king of nations so that each and every one of our New Year's resolutions will be to be a more faithful servant, a more obedient servant to the lion of nations, to the king of nations, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he is the lion of nations. Second, he is the lion of celebration. He is a lion of celebration. Verse 11 through 12, you have this image of wine uh, that plays such a prominent role in this king's rule, as we are told. Uh, wine is really predominantly used throughout Scripture symbolically for celebration, for joy. And so here, wine is being used as, as a symbol of celebration in the time of the king that is to come from Judah, from the tribe of Judah. And just look at how much wine this lion brings with him. There will be such an abundance of the vine that he will be able to hitch his donkey on not just any vine, but the choicest vine. Wine will be in such abundance that he will wash his garments in wine. He will wash his vesture in the blood of grapes. Verse 12, it tells us that his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Really here is symbolic reference to the vitality of the king, to the health of the king. His complexion will be a complexion of, that will be more rosy and darker than, than wine. His teeth will be, be whiter than milk. These are symbolic of his health and his vitality. He will be a healthy, strong, as Micah 5, as we saw two weeks ago, he will be a healthy, strong, and standing king. He will be a vital, healthy, standing, strong lion. The lion of Judah brings a time of full restoration, a time of endless celebration where the wine never runs out. 
Jesus hints at this very reality in his very first miracle at the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2. You recall that miracle there in John chapter 2. You remember there, the, the wine ran out. It's a time of celebration. It's a wedding feast, but the wine runs out early. And all the guests are wondering, where's the wine? And you recall how Jesus responded to that. He turns the, the water into wine. But it's important to notice the elements that are at play in that miracle. Notice what he takes. If you were to read John 2, he takes six jars that were meant for the Jewish rites of purification. And what those jars were, oftentimes they were filled with water so that the wedding guests, before they entered in, could wash themselves before they came into the wedding. And now Jesus turns those, those, that agent of cleansing into wine. They will wash their garments in wine. And Jesus doesn't just bring any kind of wine. He brings the good wine, as the master of the wedding says. Perhaps wine from the choicest vine. Christmas, the coming of Jesus Christ, is to be a time of celebration. You can't help but miss the celebratory mood that surrounds the birth narrative of Jesus. John the Baptist, before he's even born, leaps for joy in his mother's womb when he hears Jesus' child bear Mary and he hears her voice. Think of the Magnificat that we read from earlier in our unison reading of Scripture. How does that Magnificat, Mary's Magnificat, uh, begin? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Christmas is to be a time of celebration. The coming of Christ, we can't miss it when we read the birth narratives. It is a time of joy. It is a time of celebration. There are really few things more off-putting than a grumpy, dour Christian. And I say this as a Presbyterian. I know there's a lot of you out there that aren't Presbyterians. If, you, if you're thinking about becoming Presbyterian, you, you don't have to be dour and grumpy to be a Presbyterian, I promise you. In fact, we would dissuade you from that. There's nothing more off-putting than a dour, grumpy Christian. Our salvation has come in Christ. Christmas is a reflection on the fact that the lion of celebration has come. Certainly, when we look at the joy Christmas brings in this country, we can say perhaps that it is a bit misguided oftentimes brought on by materialistic pursuits and commercialism, Santa Claus, and all the rest. But in our efforts to counter that misguided joy, we should not look dour and sad, but we should offer to the people a different kind of joy, a joy that is just not for December and the month of December, but a joy that is ours every month of the year and into eternity itself. Revelation 19, verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Unlike with the wedding in Cana, where the wine runs out, that marriage supper that we will enjoy with our King of Kings in the new heavens and new earth, the wine will never run out. The celebration will go on and on and on.
and he invites each and every one of us to participate, to partake in that celebration by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So North Point, I say to you today, if when people see you celebrating Christmas, they are not to long for material gifts. They are to long for that one gift of Jesus Christ that brings with him an abundance of wine, that brings with him a celebration that never, ever dies out. He is the lion of celebration. Third and finally, he is the lion of sorrows. He is the lion of sorrows. Now, while in the original context of this passage, I think certainly the symbol of wine is meant to show a symbol of celebration and joy. Nevertheless, we can't now, as we are reading as New Testament Christians, we can't help but think of the Lord's Supper. When Jesus Christ raises that cup of wine, And he says, this is my blood that is shed for many. It really gives a whole new meaning to verse 11, doesn't it? He will wash his vestures in the blood of grapes. In Revelation 5, verse 5, John is told from one of the elders that he is to stop weeping because the lion of Judah has conquered But then what do we get in verse 6? What is it that John turns to see? Something that actually contradicts what he has heard. What does he see? As he hears of the Lion of Judah, he turns and he sees a lamb who is standing as though he had been slain. In other words, the Lion of Judah that John hears of, he turns and he sees is actually a slain lamb. What he hears and what he sees seems to be in contradiction with one another. Yet it is at the same time one and the same thing. The lion of Judah who is fierce. The lion of Judah who is a a ravenous lion, who has the ruler's staff, who, who, who has the scepter, the everlasting scepter. What does he look like? He looks like a lamb who is slain. Certainly, Christmas is a time of celebration, but it is also a time of somber reflection on the fact that the wine of celebration is also the wine of sorrows, the wine of suffering, the wine of the blood of the slain lamb who has been slain to purify us from our sins. The Lion of Judah is worthy of our obedience because he is the slain lamb of God. Because he is the slain lamb that purifies us, who makes us white as snow. When we enter into that wedding feast, that wedding feast where the celebration will never end, we will be donned with white garments, glorified white garments, and they will be white and purified because they will have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, in the blood of Christ. If you have not yet been washed by the blood of the Lamb, brothers and sisters, this season for you is not a time of celebration. It is a time of sorrow. But that sorrow can be turned into joy. That sorrow can be turned into celebration 
when you put your faith and your trust in the man of sorrows, in the lion of sorrows, in the slain lamb who stands for us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, but that he has come in a way that we would have never expected. He has come as a slain and helpless lamb, laying down his hands and his feet upon the cross and taking that penalty that we deserve so that we might be pure, white as snow, so that we might enter into that wedding feast with the garments that have been washed in the blood of Christ, bright white, full of refulgent glory. And we will celebrate forevermore, face to face, with the Lord of Lords, the King of glory, the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray, O Father, that you would help us to long for such things this Christmas season as we reflect on the coming of Jesus Christ. Do this, we pray, for we ask it. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.